Welcome to Doe, a podcast discussing Doe cases from around the world. I'm Allie. And I'm Kat. So we've got an update to one of the cases that we have previously covered. Everyone's probably seen this by now, but in case you haven't, Orange Socks, who we covered in episode four, has been officially identified as Deborah Jackson from Abilene, Texas. So this information I'm getting from KVUE. ABC. Um, the author is Abigail Arandondo. At the time of death, Deborah Jackson was 23, and she left home when she was 21, so two years before 1977. Mm. Um, her family didn't report her missing at the time because she didn't just suddenly disappear. It was they knew she was going off somewhere, mm-hmm. and so they thought everything was fine. And in this article, they talk about that apparently Jackson worked at a Ramada Inn in Amarillo in 1978. And then she began working at an assisted care center called Vermont Inc. in Azle, Texas, A-Z-L-E. And then in 1979, she worked for R.E. West and C.G. Cole Admiral PTR Realty Investment Limited. All of her activities involving her social security number halted in 1979 oh which is really interesting now because the main theory was that she was living a transient lifestyle based on everything so i'm wondering if she was between the time where she was working with the realty firm and and she was found or if she wasn't living a transient lifestyle and it was just yeah, that's it's, interesting. It's, yeah, because I kind of figured when this news first broke, I kind of figured for those two years she was kind of just hitchhiking around, doing things yeah, like that. Yeah, but she but seemed like she was, like, had a pretty stable... Yeah, gamefully employed. employed. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you there. No, it's okay. Well, well, now it's now that she's been identified, it's now purely a solving a murder case. Yeah. Since we do know she was murdered. Like, yeah, we'll never... We probably won't ever know... Like, if she quit that job, well, I guess we would know if she quit the job based on if they found someone who employed her, but we'll never know, like, say if she did quit, maybe her motivations or what was going on. And the photos of her, she seems, like, just so sweet. Yeah, they have some, yeah, and the the drawings just didn't do her justice. No. I mean, they're never going to because they're drawings based on. Yeah. But yeah, so um, she was identified because of a new sketch that was released by the Williamson County Sheriff's Cold Case Unit. And it was a sketch created by Natalie Murray, a forensic artist. And Deborah's sister saw the sketch, recognized her, Mm -hmm. and contacted officials. And they were able to confirm that it was her sister. I don't think we have her sister's name because... Privacy reasons. Privacy reasons. But that's basically where we're at right now. So the next step is going to be figuring out who killed her. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was always part of it. But now that we actually know who she is and can figure out where she was. Because if they know where she was in 1979, for instance. That's a great starting point. So we'll keep an eye out for more updates and continue updating. Yeah. I think our, that's our first. Uh, well, there was update. John Clinton Joe, but they're still that's still kind There's, of the yeah. They're process. still doing that. Yeah, but, but I think that's the I think first that's our case. First, like 
not solved, which we were talking about, and the salt part of this podcast is never usually really solved. Yeah. So we're just going to call it the identified part from now on. Yeah, because usually it's a murder victim. And then there's a whole other investigation that has to happen. Yeah. So we are so changing that name. It's now the identified section. Yes. And yeah. this was um, 40. It was 40 years. Wow. That it took. That's... It gives a lot of hope for other cases because it really does. After forty years, they can figure out who somebody they, was. Yeah, it's probably a really hard time trying to figure out who she <sighs> talked to in that time and oh, like yeah. who like. But the thing is that they can probably do it. Like yeah, because now it's just figuring out yeah who she talked to if they're still alive. And, yeah, what was up? But since they were able to find like, well, I guess because she was employed, they're able to follow her social security number. And figure out, because you have to give that when you get employed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, yeah. they're able to find who killed her. I really hope that we have updates on this one. Since we had so much stuff at the top, I'm just going with a very quick forensic fact. Yes. Under the vein of junk science. So, this one is about Lavelle Davis, who was convicted of murder in 1997 and sentenced to 45 years based on lip prints. Because the Illinois State Police Crime Lab examiner said that lit prints found on a roll of duct tape near the murder scene was matched to Laval Davis's lips. That's not a thing. And although there was an appeal, um, the conviction was upheld because there was no evidence that there was any dissent, quote, dissent inside the forensic community regarding the validity of this. You know why? Because nobody has ever in their right mind even thought of lip prints before. <laughs> no one has ever been like, that's a thing. So that's the quick forensic fact for this time is lip prints can't be used as positive identification or for anything. I mean, I'm so surprised that that actually even has to be said. I know. It makes me so mad. Uh, yeah, because and if you want to test it out yourself, put on some lipstick and go kiss a bunch of things and then try and match your lips. So my dough is rosy. I haven't seen her called rosy dough, just rosy. Just rosy. Which I like. That's interesting. The majority of this is sourced from an OC Register article by Scott Schwebke. Uh, I also want to give a warning that there are postmortem photos in that article. Those postmortem photos are of Andrea Quipper, who is also a Huntington Beach Jane Doe that we covered in our first yeah, episode. Yeah, the one that uh, was crossing the road. Yes. So they are her postmortem photos, not this doe. So I feel like perhaps okay. they got confused because they're both Huntington Beach Jane Doe's. Also, there is a CBS News article by Nema Jabali Nash that um, I sourced from, and Doe Namus is not a, oh, not a thing. <laughs> Doe Namus is not a thing. Uh, I used Doe Network. I used Namus, Unidentified Wiki, and the Huntington Beach Police Department Facebook page. Also, there is a mention of a New York Post article. Just using the... That. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you will find out why her nickname is Rosie soon. So, Rosie was found murdered in Huntington Beach, California on March 14th, 1968. More specifically, in a farmer's field 450 feet south of the intersection of Yorktown Avenue and Newland Street. I street viewed it, and this field is all houses now, surprising no one. Rosie was found around 4pm by some boys playing in the field. One of those boys became a police officer and has since retired. 
Which just goes to show oh, how old wow. this case is. When you think, like, 60s at first, you're like, that's not that long ago. But then you do the math. And you're like, oh boy. Yeah, it's like half a century ago. Yep. This is the oldest unidentified homicide in Orange County. She had been killed within the previous 24 hours. NamUs puts the estimated postmortem interval at 12 hours. Okay. I read somewhere that I can't remember, but this was not my original thought. But she potentially got a ride from a person, uh, perhaps someone she knew or a stranger, which are the two options. Um, she was beaten and raped and died from her throat being slashed. I don't know what it is about throat being slashed, it's but particularly that, brutal. Even like strangling doesn't affect me the same way that a throat gang slit does. Oof. It's just I don't know what it is. I think it's because it's the one that like in slasher movies is where you see it. Like you don't really think about it in real life. Yeah. It's a very visceral image in your head. Yeah. So the police theorized that her killer drove them to the field. They chatted for a while and then this person tried to sexually assault her, but she resisted, and that's when she was beaten. Her body had been dragged to a drainage ditch, and there were tire tracks near her body signaling that she was probably dumped there. Mm. But it had rained, so they couldn't get any more oh. info about the car or the tires or... Or any or if there were, like, footprints or anything. Yeah, basically. That's frustrating. Yeah, my notes on this are the disrespect for someone who is a living, breathing human being with thoughts and hopes and dreams really struck me immediately with this case. Like, it is so brutal. And I really, 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 really hope that those boys got therapy. Oh, but it was the 60s. It was they the didn't. 60s. Like, even now, if you're male, society is still getting past that. So Yeah. But I bet this was motivation for one of them to become a cop. I was just going to say that. Like, that is a very, I think that's a very clear cause and effect, Because we've probably. seen that in other things where it's, like, someone who is young and either read something or encountered something like that. It kind of pushed them to yeah. law enforcement or forensics. I'm just thinking of, um, is it Bella in The Witch Elm? I actually haven't really read up on that case because I know that one of us is going to do it at some point. Yeah, probably. but with that one, it's like two boys found her, but she was skeletal oh. when they found her. So I think... I think between, like, finding skeletal remains and versus... finding a fully fleshed... Like, like, had just been murdered. Yeah. They're both awful, but with this one, it's even more awful. Notice how I said fully fleshed? Like, I am the forensic like you, anthropologist. You said it like a forensic like, I was expert. Like, I know what I'm talking about. I was very impressed. Thank you. Here's a little bit more about Rosie. She was white or Latina between 22 and 40 years old. So she was born between 1928 and 1946. She was approximately 130 to 140 pounds and five foot one to five foot four. Namus has her at 130 pounds measured and five foot two inches measured. She was recently deceased, so those would probably be pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, she had pierced ears, brown eyes and dark brown hair. And in the postmortem photo, she's embalmed and in a very 60s updo. Do you have pictures? I do. Do you want to see them now? Yes. Okay. I really want to see this up too. Here is the postmortem. She's got like these sideburns that I feel like are so oh, 60s. Yeah, because they would, I think that's the style where normally they'd kind of curl it. Yeah. Which I always like to do. Me too. I think it's really oh, but, cute. Yeah, I can see why the age is difficult because, well, again, when you die, like since all your muscles relax, like if you look at a postmortem of Marilyn Monroe, they showed us. So, oh my that. God. It's, you can't even tell it's her. I saw that. At an age probably younger than I should have. Ooh. And it scared me so much. That's fair. But with that, like, I could tell, like, if she were alive, how she would look younger. But here she looks older. It's, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's hard. 
It's very hard. And also, I feel like this is obviously like post-embalmment. Perhaps she did not wear this type of makeup in her real life. Yeah, they may have just been. But they it looks like they made an effort to make her look nice. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that photo, Namus notes that she looked thinner and younger before being embalmed, which I would imagine oh, yeah. how it is in most embalmed photos. I think so. She had pink fingernails and red toenails, and her eyebrows are thin and really plucked as well. Rosie was well-nourished and well-developed, which I don't think means, like, womanly figure developed. Yeah, but, like, well-nourished during development. Yeah, that sounds more like no gross stunting or anything Yeah, like, like she had enough food and... Yeah. yeah, so she had, like, a good upbringing. Yeah. Her blood type was O negative, and her teeth were classified as poor condition. She had caries, which I'd never heard of before. Oh, yeah, those are, like, holes. I think this is probably from Wikipedia. Decay and crumbling of a tooth or bone. So it's basically a cavity. That's, like, turned they're into, called, like, a super cavity. They're just called dental caries. I don't know why, like, carry versus cavity, but, like, when I was doing my bio arc field school, we referred to them as dental caries. So, like, when you're doing forensic anthro, the holes are, like, caries. So I think it might just be cavities is more, like, dental field term, oh. and then... And then you guys then call them caries. anthropology stuff is caries. I think that's all it is. Okay. As we know, I don't like teeth, and I don't like any part of that. That's fair. Have I shown you a child's skull? I've seen a child's skull, <laughs> and it made every, like, tooth bone in my body it's hurt. the most horrifying oh my thing God, like, in the world. My mouth is, like, aching right now just thinking about it. And she had some teeth missing in the back of her mouth, both upper and lower, and her front teeth were crooked. They didn't find any drugs or alcohol in her system. Fingerprints are available. And the Doe Network says that DNA was collected, but I don't know if they mean Rosie's or whoever did this to her mm. because I've never seen DNA mentioned anywhere else. Hmm. So to me, that, w- that was not clarified. It's probably her. Probably hers, right? They found a single cigarette butt at the scene and they got a DNA profile from it. This could possibly be the killer's. And in that police theory I mentioned earlier, they think he dropped the cigarette on the ground while they were chatting in the car before all this bad stuff happened. Um, it could have been a lot of different scenarios, but I think that's plausible. Oh yeah. As a theory, I think that's totally plausible. They also found male DNA in the sexual assault evidence kit for this case. I would be curious if they ran those two next to each other to rule out the cigarette being some random yeah. person's. Like, I would imagine that's like number one, right? But also the fact that the kit was done in 1968 and kept long enough for dna to be extracted is amazing i'm like pumping my fists right now oh that makes me so happy that is some fantastic police work and whoever was in charge like the evidence locker that's amazing they get so many kudos from me they ran the sexual assault evidence and the cigarette in CODIS, which is Combined DNA Index System, which is a national database that forensic labs use at all levels of government to compare DNA profiles of known offenders and DNA profiles linked to violent crimes. I definitely got that information somewhere. That was not my brain. <laughs> I'm just glad you didn't make me explain it because I'm like, I don't remember what it stands for. It's the States. Uh, I believe that CODIS is run by the FBI and like, was originally, like, sourced as FBI software. Okay, so there's no mention of pregnancy. Okay. And a user on WebSleuths, going in a little bit of a rabbit hole here okay. on WebSleuths, with the caveat that we always do, that everybody can lie on the internet. Oh, absolutely. Uh, a user on WebSleuths, Ambercat is the username, says that the Orange County coroner, Allison O'Neill, confirmed that she did not have pregnancy. Like, there were no signs of pregnancy. No, okay. The items that were found with her were a black nylon three-quarter length jacket, 
purple nylon capri pants and a really bright like neon kind of colored long sleeve blouse with flowers on it and blue, pink, and green stripes, a black size 36B bra, and a ring that had a square blue stone and a silver color around it, like for the metal, but that's been described as inexpensive, so it probably wasn't real silver. Okay, yeah. She also had size 7 leather loafers made by the company Owego, which was made by the Endicott Johnson Shoe Company, which had a few factories in upstate New York. So the Huntington Hmm. Beach Police Department specifically mentioned that she may have spent time in the Tioga County area of New York, which is about 200 miles or 321 kilometers from New York City. And also a note that she was actually wearing these shoes. And on January 4th, 2011, police also released a new sketch and a woman thought that she recognized the victim. She had a friend that worked at a bar called the Circus Room in Long Beach, who was approximately 26 years old, had a husband, and she could have had a two-year-old son named John John. So he was probably named John. This person that this woman knew also had two brothers and her name was Rosie and she was from Um. New York. So just to go back for a second, so she was sexually assaulted? I guess she was if they had a sexual assault kit. But but she's wearing all her clothes? I guess so. Huh. I mean, that does happen, but... It could happen. That's just strange. Because especially if it was like she fought back, so... Yeah, I didn't clock that. Yeah, because that's strange. Okay, so she had two brothers. Her name is Rosie. She was from New York. Possibly from Brooklyn or the Bronx. I'm assuming they are, but they were thinking that because of her accent. And the woman couldn't remember her last name, but knew it was Italian. Also in 2011, a few witnesses reached out to police to say they also knew a Rosie who moved from Long Beach, who moved to Long Beach from New York, who had a strong New York accent. All of these tips and leads have gone nowhere. They have not been able to find any more information Mm. other than that. Here's where the New York Post information comes in. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. So they did a... An article about this. So drama alert, because it's the post. Because, yes. But apparently the circus room was in this, I guess it's like a street called Blood Alley, which was a strip of bars frequented by bikers and beach bums. Also, uh, this New York Post article obviously had to like describe and outline how this woman broke down sobbing after seeing the autopsy photos. Autopsy photos are upsetting in general. They actually are. That's neither here nor there, I feel. Oh, so they're saying, like, the possible mother or friend or... The friend, um... Oh, who worked with her? Broke down. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's also just, like, a psych... I nearly said psychological A psychological <laughs> thing, eh? It's a psychological thing where if she's, like, if she is determined that this is this woman and she sees the autopsy photos, regardless, I think she's probably going to have some sort of extreme emotional reaction. Exactly. Because that happens also, um... I cannot remember where I heard about this story or what it was, but it could have been anywhere. It may have happened more than once where a family thought that they were burying, like, their grandfather and obviously were grieving because they're like, that's him. And it mm-hmm. turned out it wasn't him because bodies had been mixed up or... But if... Oh, it was... Um, they thought the grandfather died and buried him. It turned out the grandfather, I think, was still alive. Who did they bury then? Someone else. Oh, boy. I don't remember where this was. This was a while ago. But it's like... Because, again, it's really hard to recognize people in postmortem because because your skin's doing all kinds of different things it didn't do in life. Your muscles have all completely relaxed. Also, from a metaphysical aspect, you are not you. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, it's, you do not have the life within yeah, you. Yeah, it's just, it reminds me of when you're trying to get someone to recognize someone um, from a picture versus video. Like, with me, I'm more likely to recognize somebody and they're moving and talking than I am from a photo. I mean, I'm also... Having said that... I'm also face blind, so there, it help. There are... There's just a lot of times where we have watched a movie or The O.C. Because I made you watch a lot of The O.C. That was fun. I love The O.C. But we would be like halfway through the movie and you'd ask me who someone was. Oh, it still happens. <laughs> I recognized Liam Neeson and Charlie Theron in bit parts in a show I was watching. I was very proud of myself. I am proud of you. I was like, oh my god, I recognized them. Progress. Anyway. Anyway. So yeah, New York Post might be kind of reaching. Yes. Okay, so now here is where the 11 p.m. rabbit hole comes in. Oh dear. So this could be a huge lead or a dead end. I got all this information. Uh, someone on Web Sleuth posted a link to the Huntington Beach Police Department who posted a lot of stuff in 2011 about this case. Okay. So the fact that I haven't, that they've done press conferences since this post and have not mentioned this at all means that either perhaps they're playing their cards close to their chest or this is nothing. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I don't know which one it is, but they released info on January 4th, 2011, Mm -hmm. that on March 14th, 1968, at 4.30 p.m., um, and let's just scroll up to when Rosie was found, which was March 14th, 1968 at 4 p.m. Also half an hour earlier. Yes. And let's also remember that they found those tire marks indicating that she was dumped. Yeah. Something doesn't track in the police theory then. Because if she was dumped there Mm -hmm. and he did the cigarette thing, then it wouldn't be when they were talking if he just dumped her there. Oh, yeah. So I'm probably misunderstanding that theory or maybe there's another part of that theory that I didn't hear or... Yeah, because that wouldn't Something about that doesn't track. Anyways... So at 4.30 p.m. on March 14th, 1968, two other boys playing in a field. This was an oil field, though. This was not a farm field. Okay, just any kids listening, you shouldn't be listening. But if you are, don't (laughs) play in oil fields. That's all. Yeah. Uh, So this is a quarter mile away from the Rosie crime scene. Okay. And I don't know how far that is. It's less than a kilometer. Oh, okay. That's close. Because I think a co- It's pretty close. That's a question on OkCupid. Do you know the difference? Yeah. And you can have it, like... Like, be, like, a deal breaker? Yeah. I don't think I want to be with someone who that's a deal breaker for. <laughs> no. Quarter mile away. A quarter mile away from the rosy crime scene in the area of Huntington Street and Utica Avenue, found a white purse and a white wallet with no ID or money, but seven photos in total. There were also tire tracks near the purse. So, obviously, don't. Yeah. This purse is not mentioned anywhere I could find, except for this Facebook post from Mm. eight years ago and Web Sleuth. Okay, so either they have figured out it didn't belong to her and therefore dropped it, because we don't know what the photos had. I have photos of the photos for you. And I will describe the photos. Um, And I think these... These photo descriptions came from the Huntington Beach police. So there's a woman's high school or college grad photo, mm-hmm. and it has mom written on the top front of the photo, and then love always Nancy on the bottom of the photo. Mm-hmm. And then there's a young man in a suit and a tie with mom written on the top of the photo, and then with love Alan on the front bottom. There's a baby on a blanket, and there's also a young boy crying with a cowboy hat oh. on. He it, This looks like Woody's hat from Toy Story. And then there's a baby that is slightly older than the other baby, pushing himself up like he's crawling or something. And then there is a professional portrait of a toddler with curly hair. Police say that it's a boy, but it could just be a girl wearing a blue striped shirt. So my gut is saying that this isn't related to Rosie because the age of the people in the photos 
but maybe she was related to them and somehow got photos that they gave their mother. Maybe, but also, like, the middle one kind of looks like her. The middle one kind of looks like her. Actually, you're right. It really like, does. Like, maybe that is Rosie. And mom, love Nancy, mom, love Alice. Yeah, so these were given, I think... To their mother. To their mother. It's hard to say. Namus and the Doe Network don't mention a purse found in the area, which totally makes sense because the connection is pretty tenuous. It could really go either way. Mm -hmm. But that is really intriguing. Like if it was found like half an hour. Half an hour. And there were tire tracks. Too bad that it was raining or else they could have like checked those tire tracks. tracks. And also it's just a weird thing to find a purse like tossed out on the side of the road. And everything else taken, but like these seven photos. You'd think that they would take the photos as well or maybe they were like in like a little secret pocket that they didn't know about i'd really like to know if that was just dismissed and they found like the real owner or if it actually has to do with the case and they're just kind of keeping it quiet right now yeah in the 2016 press conference huntington beach police chief robert handy said that perhaps rosie uh was living a quote Free spirit lifestyle common in the late 1960s unquote so he's saying she might be a hippie yes Okay. (laughs) He goes on to say, quote, there was a lot of hitchhiking, a lot of cross-country travel, unquote. And then he goes on to say that perhaps her family members didn't know what happened to her. Maybe she was just off doing her thing, unquote. Like buckskin girl or orange socks or grateful doe. We see this a lot where the families just are like, you come back and say hi when you're ready. Yeah, because like even nowadays. Yeah. Like the one case I was telling you about that my prof did a facial reconstruction of where he was um, a tra- like he was transient. He would show up mm-hmm. occasionally, but then mm-hmm. disappear and then he died when he was... Um, in Toronto at one point, like mm-hmm. Eglinton Flats or something like that. There's just sometimes you have family members who are like that. They yeah, just they are just in and out of your life. Out. Yeah, so it could have been that situation. And another police theory is that she could have been the victim of a serial killer, which it's a possibility. I mean, yeah, it's always a possibility. So there are people who are working on this case and really care about it. From the CBS News article by Nama Jabali Nash, a quote from Detective Riley of the Huntington Beach Police Department in 2011, we are desperate to identify the victim. As of November 2016, there was a task force for Rosie with investigators from all over Orange County. So from Anaheim, Fullerton, Garden Grove, Huntington Beach, and Santa Ana. So, oh wow. Yeah. So I think because this is the oldest unidentified homicide, they're probably like, yeah, let's get this done. And also if they have her DNA, Maybe forensic genealogy? One would hope. I hope so. Oh, but now this is is one where I'm just like, I kind of want to go through newspapers.com and just look for any rosies or something or like... Yeah. Because this is this one feels really solvable. It does feel really solvable. And it feels like it's so close. Like it feels like there's family looking for her, but they just don't know where to look. Yeah. Wow, I can't believe I've never heard of this. I had never heard of this one too. So I, I might actually do a rabbit hole of seeing if I can find Rosie. This is definitely a rabbit hole case. I mean, her name is Rosie. But. Yeah, if her name is Rosie. It, she could be Nancy. Mm-hmm. She could be not Rosie. There's like 800 million names that aren't Rosie. I counted all of them. Oh, so that's what you do on your off time. <laughs> yeah, I just count names. Just count names. That's yeah. fair. I could actually see you doing that, honestly. Actually, that's that seems entirely like a, on brand. That, that is very you. <laughs> yeah. So this is another listener recommendation, suggestion. And this is from Emily, who emailed us a few different suggestions. So Yes. And uh, it was a lovely email. It was so much, Emily. 
So I am doing, this is actually a twofer because I thought it was just going to be one dough, but it turns out it's a case with two connected doughs, kind of like when you did Venture Ventura County. Ventura and Kern County. Yeah, exactly. So it turned into one of those. Oh. So this, it started out as just being about Bitter Creek Betty, but it also turns out she is connected to Sheridan County dough. Okay. All right. Um, so all my information is from the Doe Network and NamUs. I tried other sources too, but there was nothing. Nothing giving. about. There was no yeah. other good information. So sometimes you read an article and you can tell that you've just read the same information that that person. Exactly. Yeah. It didn't really add anything. So yeah, all my information just from Doe Network and NamUs. Cool. So on March 1st, 1992, in Sweetwater County, Wyoming, a truck driver found the naked body of a woman face down at the bottom of a slope on the westbound side of Interstate 80 by a turnout called Bitter Creek. The location of her body led to her being nicknamed Bitter Creek Betty. And I had to look up what a turnout was because I did not get it. This is what a turnout is. It's just kind of like a little, it's like a really big shoulder on a highway. Oh, where you can have like a rest stop if you yeah, want. Yeah, like it can be like, yeah arrest um there's also smaller ones so if you're on like a two-lane highway and someone behind you wants to pass that's a really good idea because i get so stressed out sometimes so yeah that's what a turnout is okay i didn't know they had names but i guess some of them do we're learning things yes okay bitter creek betty had been raped and stabbed to death likely at a different site and then dumped off interstate 80 between october 1991 and february 1992 She also showed signs of strangulation and blood force trauma to the face. Possibly the most horrifying part is the cause of death, which is described as resulting from an ice pick or something similar, stabbing through her left nostril into the sphenoid. I hope that she was not conscious when that was happening. Yeah. That is terrifying. The sphenoid, it's also called like the butterfly or moth. It sits behind, it makes up your eye socket, like part of it. And it also makes up part of your temple. Um, can you please click on Google Images so that I can... Yes, I will show you. Okay, so here's where it looks like a butterfly. Or yes. like a moth. Or an elephant face. Or an elephant face. And here's how it sits. Yeah. Okay, so how does this relate to our dough? She was stabbed through the left nostril. Into, into the sphenoid. <gasps> Holy Moses. Now that I actually know what that is, I'm even more terrified. I know I say this every freaking episode, but I really just want to hug her. I know. It's just, this is what I would call overkill. Absolutely. Because that that's just, that's so much. Um, So Betty was approximately 24 to 32 years old, around 5'8 and 125 to 130 pounds. Uh, she had dark brown or black eyes and collar length hair. Same color. Okay. Uh, and based on her DNA, she was of European and South American descent. I just want to make a note. If you look at NamUs or Doe Network, it's going to say she was of Hispanic descent. But Hispanic is a language group. It's wrongly used to describe ethnicity. So just a note for everyone, if you see that and don't know, Hispanic is different from ethnicity. So she had a vertical C-section scar. So meaning she had a cesarean section at some point. And a one-inch scar on her left calf. Not sure where on the calf or vertical or horizontal or anything like that. Mm-hmm. She also had a rose tattoo on her right breast, which was discovered to have been <gasps> done at a tattoo shop in Tucson, Tucson Arizona, yes. near the Triple T truck stop. Sorry, I just gasped that they were able to track that down. Yes. 
Because um, the artist came forward, oh, supposedly, Okay. We're, if we're assuming this is correct. The artist who apparently did the tattoo was put under hypnosis to give details about her. And he supposedly recalled that she was a transient hitchhiker with no accent who wore a brown peasant dress with yellow flowers on the day she got the tattoo. So who knows if this is true. I was just going to ask, have you guys talked in like your program about if hypnosis is bunk science or not? I kind of think it's one of those things that edges, because I remember in my psychology class, we talked about it, and it can be useful, but I don't quite know which situations it's useful, because I've also seen in forensic files where they use a guy, they had hypnosis, and he was able to recall a license plate correctly. Whoa! So I kind of think it's different, because also, I think it was Ono, Ross, and Carrie, they talk a lot about the... uh, recovered memories thing yes with hypnosis which is complete that's BS. garbage like yeah. that's just complete garbage so i kind of think it depends but with this one so it's it's it could be accurate it could not but um i have a picture of the rose tattoo right here mm. oh it wow it's so interesting seeing older tattoos mm-hmm. and how much the technology has changed right but I would say that's an American traditional Absolutely. Style. So here's her in the peasant dresses. That's a Carl, and it's Ugh. very good, like all Carls. Carl's just amazing. So the woman was found wearing a gold necklace and gold band on her left ring finger, but I'm not sure if they were actual gold or just looked like it. So her teeth showed evidence of prior dental work, which might have been probably fillings. Probably, yeah. Maybe, maybe a bridge or a crown, maybe. Yeah, tons of things. Um... Pink underwear and sweatpants were found near her body, but there's no indication if they belonged to her. Like, in, she wasn't wearing them, so the way it's written out implies that they belonged to her, but I think the only way you could know that is if there was, like, a picture of her right. prior to her murder or if they had DNA connecting. Because it's a turnout off a highway. People might stop to the side of the road to do other things. And, happen. like, when you're driving along, you'll see, like, a pair of shoes in the middle of the road. Do you ever see that? Like, going yes. along? And it's like... Where did those come like, from? Shoe. So it's hard to say. With this, it's it could belong to her. It could just be it not related at all and just ended up as like roadside debris. But Bitter Creek Betty is now in Rest Haven Memorial Gardens. But here's where it gets interesting. DNA not belonging to her was found on her <gasps> body and subsequently linked to another Jane Doe found in Sheridan County, Wyoming, on April 13th, 1992. So just a quick refresher, Bitter Creek Betty was found on March 1st, 1992, in Sweetwater County, Wyoming. Sheridan County Doe was found April 13th, so that's... That's like a month and a half. Yeah, about a month and a half later, in Sheridan County, Wyoming. Pardon me, because I don't have the counties in Wyoming memorized. Thank you for looking at that map. I was just thinking about my mom going, hey, next time you podcast, you should probably have a map open, and I did not heed her advice. But I'm opening the map right now. You're opening the map, Mom. Okay, there's Sweetwater. And Sheridan's, like, across the state. Oh, okay, so Sweetwater, for anyone else who doesn't know, like us, uh, we're looking at, like, the southwestish part of Wyoming is where Bitter Creek Betty was found. And then Sheridan County is all the way north and... Kind of central. Kind of central, yeah. Okay, so Sheridan County Doe was found in a ditch along the southbound I-90 on the west side. On NamUs, it's described as a barrow ditch, which Google tells me is for drainage. So once again, we have a drainage ditch. Um, This woman had died from blunt force trauma to the head, which is what happened to Bitter Creek Betty, but she was too decomposed to determine anything else. Like Bitter Creek Betty, 
Investigators believe she was murdered elsewhere and then deposited where she was found. The woman was white, approximately 16 to 21 years old, about 5'5 to 5'6, and 110 to 115 pounds. Her straight or slightly wavy shoulder-length hair was brown and sun-bleached, and her eye color was obviously unknown. Yeah. Namus also lists that she had dark brown pubic hair. Okay. Which is the first time I've seen that in one of these listings. No, I've seen that before. Really? Yeah, because I, I, there was one doe where it was the pubic hair was red, but she was a brunette or something, so I feel like they had to Oh, that. I remember that now. Yeah. yeah. Um, she was found fully clothed, aside from socks and shoes. So that's different from Bitter Carrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was wearing a light blue and white gingham crop top with fake pearl and jewel buttons that tied up on the bottom. So, you know, like those, like that. Yes. Like it's got the uh, fabric to tie into a bow yeah, at the bottom. Yeah. Like I had some of these growing up and yeah, like it reminds me kind of a, like a ballet sweater as well. Uh, she had size... Five to six blue jeans with a white plastic belt with a silver buckle. A size 38C light blue lacy support bra. Do you know what a support bra is? Isn't that like a sports bra? That's what I was thinking, but do they come in... I've honestly not really heard the term support bra before. Maybe it's like a push-up bra or maybe underwire. Like, I just don't know what that is. I think it's a... Maybe they do make lacy sports bras. Maybe. But yeah, that was the thing I meant to like text somebody and be like, hey, do you know what this is? And then I kind of forgot. And she was wearing pink paisley nylon underwear in a bikini cut. She was also wearing brass ball stud earrings. All that is known about the perpetrator is that he is blood type O and is believed to be a serial offender due to the, quote, sophistication of the killings. Okay. Which I could, at first I was like, sophistication, but then I'm thinking, okay, he clearly knows killing them one place, depositing them somewhere else, the ice pick thing. That's not... Your first step when no, you are killing. that is... Ugh, like, I have no words. I, I don't even know if we've come across it. In I point. have honestly never heard of that before. No, this is the no. first time I've heard of that. Like... Outside of, like, an assassination thing. Or, like, the whole ice pick lobotomy thing. But, yeah. Ugh. This is the first time I've seen it in this kind of context. Yeah. So, if they believe it's, like, sophisticated serial killer, that means there's... Most likely more victims. Yeah. I would be surprised if there weren't. So that's all the information we have. Like, the theory is that these two women could have been hitchhikers, and they just came across the wrong person. Obviously, there's always the thought that maybe they were sex workers, because that's that's a vulnerable population that is targeted a lot. But yeah, we have no idea who they are. They both are pretty young, too, right? Yeah. And in that, um, I just noticed when you flipped to um, that doe, the second doe, um, she looks really young. And that Carl sketch, the sketch that Carl's done is very good. And she does look really young. Yeah, I guess we can. I don't think we can talk about this. So um, for Bitter Creek Betty, we obviously have her autopsy photo. Her eyes were not like this, but I find it interesting in this sketch. So we have a Carl Koppelman, a James or or Charles E. Holt and Wesley Neville. So the Wesley one, he's chosen to have her teeth sticking out, which I find interesting because the reason that her face is like this and showing her teeth is because she was face down when she died. That's why if you look at her face, um, it's kind of, everything's like kind of pushed to the side. Yeah, because that's how she was. Yeah. So it... Oh, this baby. does not necessarily mean that her teeth were sticking out. No. 
like it could have just been the closed mouth. So I find it interesting that he chose to do that. Yeah. This one doesn't look anything like no offense the artist, but this doesn't look I'm sorry, Charles Z. Holt. That doesn't really it doesn't look, look like anything her. like her. And I find it interesting with Carl's is like the teeth are sticking out, but he's made it so like smiling. Yeah, so you still see her teeth in the position that they were in her mouth, but it's not like Yeah. A... So it's it's kind of marrying the con the idea of maybe she her teeth did stick out in life. Maybe it didn't, but you can... The Carl one is really good. It looks just like the autopsy yeah. photo. Yeah, and he's put her in the dress that the tattoo artist supposedly remembered. And, and also, like he always does, there's the background the is background. where she was found. Yeah, like if you look at pictures of Wyoming and look at the background of this, yeah. Yeah, but yeah I love when he does the background. It just yes. And then we have Sheridan County Doe. Carl's done a really good one. Again, Wyoming background. He's put the top on of how it would look with the earrings. And he's made it look like someone in the age range that they estimate could yeah. have been. I'm kind of with the perpetrator. I'm wondering if maybe it was Trucker. It makes sense. Because they're both found along, I'm guessing, the interstates are busy. That's where you would find a trucker. Yes, yeah, so we have truckers. the I... What was it? I-90 and the I-80? It would be easy for a trucker to, like, pick up hitchhikers or something. Mm-hmm. Or if they were sex workers, maybe working a truck stop. Someone who knows these... turn Like, with the Bitter Creek turnout, knows... Because you where, just know the area so exactly, well because you've traveled it so much. So I feel like it's... Uh, like, I'm kind of leaning toward the trucker idea. Just because, again, off the highway. But also someone who goes this route a lot. Mm-hmm. And he would probably know not even only the places, but the times exactly to, to like make a clean getaway. I'm just I I kind of want to see if there's more like does along these routes. Yeah, so we have the DNA of the perpetrator, mm-hmm. and I believe we have yes for Bitter Creek Betty we have the fingerprints and DNA for Sheridan County Doe we have her fingerprints and DNA. So that's promising. That is promising. And if they have the DNA of the perpetrator, they might be able to find more victims. Because there's yeah. no way it's just these there's two. There's no way. So yeah, that's the case that started out as just me looking up the window and turned out to be two. This identified. Not yes. solved, identified. Case is of Max Tansevsky. And this is a case from Australia. So there's an excerpt of Unsolved Australia by Justine Ford on news.com.au, which we'll link to in the show notes. Oh, and I use that for flat tops. Yes! Um, There's also a video clip from the Herald Sun. Uh, There's info from the Australian Missing Persons Register and an article by Charles Miranda, News Corp Australia Network. Oh, and also, as always, unidentified.wikia.org. Max Tansevsky is the real name of Rackman, an unidentified man found in Sydney, Australia on August 11th, 1994, by fisherman Mark Peterson, who is on the Lady Marion fishing trawler looking for squid in the Hawkesbury River. And Max got caught in one of their nets. Okay. Uh, He was tied with orange rope to a cross made out of metal, specifically for him, as it fit his exact measurements. Well, that's one of the more horrifying things I've ever heard. Yeah. Like, I'm just picturing, like, pulling up your nuts and... And seeing this. And just anybody doing that. It's like, diabolical. It's really it's, bad. So it was just, like, a regular cross? Uh, so there's this article. I don't know oh. um, what what newspaper? publication oh. or newspaper this is, but it's by police reporter Les Kennedy, and it's got a diagram of the rack. It's, like, a metal frame, and there's 
It's like a long stick with like horizontal bars going across this vertical stick. And there are four bars. One's like by his neck, one's by his elbows, one's by his knees, and one's by his ankles. So it's like all of the joints. Okay, that's even worse because I was kind of picturing like crucified. And before I saw this, I didn't understand what they meant by like to his exact measurements. But now like you know that it's the measurements of the rack. Because it's it's like one's at his neck. And one's one's at his his elbows. elbows, And one's at his knees. And one's at his... I'm so upset that there's some... That there's someone in this world who did this. I I don't even know what to say to that. Yes. That is beyond horrifying. I don't know what you say to that. Also, there is a photo of the actual rack... It is on, I found it on the website unsolvedtruecrime.com. And initially, before I saw the diagram, I thought this was just part of the boat because it just looks yeah, like it just a looks boat like, thing. I don't know, like I don't a, know. a thing that you put on a boat and attach stuff to. Clearly, we are both boaters. <laughs> yes, we know a lot about boats. But now you can see that that is the rack. And you can see the long vertical <gasps> metal piece that's pretty wide it's wider than it mm-hmm. looks in that diagram and then you can see the sticky outy yeah the like the horizontal bars yeah oh my god honestly it's kind of nauseating so that's the rack um he also had a wire wrapped around his neck and abdomen and he was wrapped in plastic bags which is so degrading it's like they thought he was trash so was it like his whole body was in a bag or like i'm just trying to figure out how that would work i didn't see any photos of the bags That's just a weird thing to do. It's weird. Yeah. So because of the metal cross, Max became known as Rackman. Blunt force trauma to the head was the cause of death, but they couldn't figure out if he had been thrown in the river before or after he died. Or if he... Oh, fuck. Sorry. I'm I'm the one that wrote this and it just hit me now that he may have been on that rack and, like, gone into the water and not been able to do anything. And that's so terrifying. Oh, Max. Okay. Um, Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Yeah, that... I just... I really, really, really hope he was either dead or unconscious, at least, when I he went to the water. I really hope he was dead. I just hope he was not aware at all. No one... No one ever deserves that. That's fucked. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is... That's beyond. It is beyond. When they found him, it sounds like his remains were just bone, not mm. fleshed. At first, Mark, who was the person who found him, thought he'd come across some animal bones before he realized they were human. Dr. Chris Lawrence at the New South Wales Institute of Forensic Science confirmed that they were human. Also from the excerpt from Unsolved Australia, I now know what grave wax is. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I wish I did not know what grave wax is. We all wish we didn't know what grave wax was. It's also known as adipocere. Is that how I say that? Yeah, adipocere. Adipocere, which is, quote, a waxy substance formed by decomposition of soft tissue in dead bodies subjected to moisture. So it's kind of like a soap? Yep. Like we were talking about? Yeah. I think I was talking about how, like, soap used to be made with animal Yeah. Fat. This is, yeah. So, like, with my internship, looking at the pigs decomposing mm-hmm. in water, we were looking at, like, adipocere formation. Oh, so okay. So it actually helps preserve the body. Because it's like all of your fatty tissue coming in kind of almost like a cocoon. Like all the fatty tissue comes and like surrounds the body. And this is specifically only in water. Yep. Okay. Dr. Lawrence also determined that the man was a Caucasian male of Central European or Mediterranean ancestry. He had dark hair. He was between 21 and 46 years old. 
and he was between five foot two and five foot four in height. They couldn't find fingerprints and his DNA was so deteriorated that technology couldn't identify him, but they were able to tell that he didn't have any fillings and a molar had been removed. This could mean extremely excellent dental care or he's just one of those people who never gets cavities. In his pocket were Benson and Hedges brand cigarettes. Oh, is that one still around? I think it is. Because I, I know that brand. I'm pretty sure it is. Police took the shirt to uh, the company that made it, mm-hmm. which was the clothing manufacturer Everything Australian, and it was a polo shirt. They said the shirt was probably manufactured between 1982 to 1987 due to the logo on the tag. Oh, that's cool. And they mostly had stores in New South Wales and Queensland at the time, and his tracksuit pants were by the company No Sweat. It's a very 90s name. It's a very 90s name. The media thought it was a mob hit. The public offered up some tips to Rackman's identity. One was Joe Biviano, a drug dealer that went missing in December 1993, but the DNA didn't match. Another suggestion was Peter Mitris, a Greek businessman who went missing in April 1991. A tip police had gotten earlier said that Peter had also suffered from blunt force trauma before being dumped into the ocean in Sydney. But Peter was taller than Rackman by at least six inches, and his sister confirmed that the teeth were definitely not a match. There was also a hitman missing since 1985 named Christopher Dale Flannery, also known as Mr. Rentakill, who was on the list of potential Rackmen but his dental records did not match either. I'm sorry, Mr. Rentakill? I know. I had never heard of this before. I'm sorry, but when has a mob hit ever been this complicated? My major basis of mob information is The Sopranos. I don't know. I I guess I would have to, like, do some deep dive on mob hits. I've never heard of a mob hit like this whatsoever. Normally, I know it's normally just, like, a gunshot. They're usually sleep with the fishes, we don't care kind of thing. Like, just make sure that it doesn't come back to us. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like I'm basing this off of nothing, but I just feel like with mob hits, it's usually more they want to get it done, like they don't want to spend a ton of time. Yeah. So there were all these other people who it was not. And then there was Max, who was last seen leaving home on January 11th, 1993 in Newtown, a suburb of Sydney. He was leaving home to go gambling on the Gold Coast with $1,800. Oh, the Gold Coast. Gambling. Loan shark. Mafia? Oh, I was stuck on Gold Coast. That's where, like, from what I know, it's, like, their spring break kind of place to go. It's, like, the party place. I see. Yes. But that is where Mafia maybe comes in. Okay, I could see that. He had $1,800, and this was not out of the ordinary for Max, as he was known to be a gambler. But when he didn't come home a few days later, he was reported missing. And I'm guessing this was probably by his girlfriend who he lived with. Yeah, that's a good assumption. probably who would have done it. 1800 Australian dollars in 1993 would be about 3400 Australian dollars now, which is 3100 Canadian dollars, 2394 US dollars and 1900 pounds. That is a lot and he was carrying cash. Yeah, it was cash. Oh. So, in August 2018, DNA confirmed that Rackman was Max Tansevsky. All I could really find was mention of new DNA technology, so I'm not sure exactly how they identified him, but I'm fairly certain it wasn't GEDmatch or familial DNA, or else they probably would have mentioned that, because I feel like this is such a new technology that, like... And also, we don't know what their laws are with that kind of thing, because we can't currently use it in Canada. So maybe Australia's in the boat that we're in. Yeah, maybe so. Max was 
36 years old when he was last seen. He was known to owe a few people money, but he mm. didn't seem to know anyone in any sort of organized crime. Okay. Like, that doesn't seem like something that you would publicize a lot. Yeah. And I am not victim blaming at all because it sounds like Max may have had maybe a gambling addiction or even if he just wanted to go, like, I'm not blaming him. Yeah, because there's people who just, like, go do yeah. it recreationally. Yeah. And if it was a gambling addiction, addiction makes you do stuff that you wouldn't normally do. And also, if he owed money to people, then that indicates he wasn't playing within his limits. Yeah, which is, indicates a problem. Yeah. Which, honestly, like, I really feel for anybody who's got a gambling addiction, because that seems... Yeah, I was talking about this with my friends earlier. We were texting each other and just talking about how terrifying addiction is. It really is. Because, like, if you have, like, an addictive personality, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. you can really become addicted to anything. It's and true. Just, and... I think generally, unless you might have warning signs from, like, other family members that you might be that way, but oftentimes you don't know until you're addicted to something. And it could be anything. It really could be. And also with, like, gambling, like, casinos and stuff, they are set up to take advantage. They are, like, yes, come, if you've got any sort of proclivity towards an addiction to gambling, we are going to make sure that it happens. Like, they have their crazy carpets, which is all psychological. They don't have clocks so that you lose track of time. And then there's the whole adrenaline rush. Yeah, and and like, the... Like the dopamine hit and everything. Mm-hmm. And then there's me who spends $15 on slots and is like, I'm good. I just, my granddad used to take us to go um, to the casino for fun and he'd give us like 50 bucks each. And it turns out you can you can be bad at the slots. But yeah, I could definitely see, like, even if it was an organized crime that he owed money or a loan shark, just not a friend because a friend won't murder you, but an acquaintance or somebody he knew, like, that he got just wrapped up. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with some of these cases, the simplest explanation or the one where, like, the dots are waiting to be connected in front of you, sometimes that is what happens. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's worth looking into. And here's where I'm like, this absolutely has nothing to do with anything, and it is not this at all. UnsolvedTrueCrime.com mentions that perhaps due to the cross-like shape, the crime could have been done by an occultist. Oh, for God's sake. I know. An occultist religious group or Satanists. I knew it was going to be Satanists. I knew it was Satanists. It doesn't even look like a cross, though. Like, when you hear... It's not a cross. His arms are at his side. There's four different, like, cross sections. It looks more like an old-school antenna. It actually does. It looks like an antenna. It's the antenna worshippers. This is... Early, so early 90s, 80s, the satanic panic. Absolutely. And this is 100% not the Satanists or any other sort of occultist religious group. So the other option, so it could be mob, 100% not Satanists. It could be some psychopathic torture man. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like it's really personal where somebody knew this person and wanted to make him suffer. I feel like what we were saying before, like sometimes the simplest answer is the answer. Like Occam's razor. Yeah. I feel like this is an Occam's razor case. Also, if it were like a sadistic serial killer, I feel like we'd be finding more. So to end this, I guess I'll say what's happening on the case. Yeah, because obviously it's not solved. Yes. So this is not solved. Oh, this is the one that made you go, we should be calling these identified because half these aren't actually solved. Yes, this is 100% why I said that. So they don't know anything about what happened other than the rack, where it happened, why it happened, who made it happen. But the unsolved homicide unit of the New South Wales police is working on it. 
They're currently assessing hundreds of cold cases to see if technology can help close old cases and Max's is one of them. That's amazing. Yeah, so I really, really hope that they find whoever did this. And I I really hope this was isolated. Me too. I really hope nobody else had to go through this. Me too. Because it's bad enough that Max had to go through this. It is horrific. I'm leaning toward it having to do with money. Yeah. Now you just owed the wrong person money. Yeah. So I haven't found any photos of Max. Oh, wait, no, that's a lie. There's definitely a photo of Max. Yeah, I'm like, wasn't there a photo? Like, There's 100% a photo of Max. Oh, he just... That's Max. Yeah, he just looks like your average dude. He's just a guy living his life who did not deserve this. No. And then there's... This drawing, and they did a few different ones of the drawing. One without hair, one with, like, more of a bang-type situation, mm. one with, like, no bangs. And go back to what he actually looked like. Close, but they. I feel like um, Max's yeah. face is fuller. Than... Yeah, he has a more oval face, and the bust and everything were giving him a more angular face. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, so this is exactly what I thought when I saw the name Rackman. Yeah. I figured it was going to be something horrific. And it's horrific. So this is the end of the episode where we tell you to check out our Twitter and our Instagram, which are both at Doe Podcast. And we've also got a Facebook page. Also, if you have suggestions, if you want to say hi, we love case suggestions. Our email is doepodcast at gmail.com. And you can download us wherever you want, I think. We've got a lovely link tree in both our Instagram and Twitter bio. Maybe if you've been following us on Twitter, you'll see that we are big into like the environment and politics and all that. And normally I we don't really talk about that. It's kind of just a Twitter only thing. Twitter only. We get we get very we, not loud on we Twitter. We have taken the smallest soapbox that we possibly can and we are standing on it. We are standing on that soapbox. But anyway, so as I hope all of you know, the Amazon is still on fire. And what a lot of people seem to be missing is it's not an accident of fire. It's not like a forest fire that happens in California. This is actually an act of genocide. The, Which I did not know until the, you started posting yeah, about it. Yeah, the, the leader of Brazil is making an effort to wipe out the indigenous people who live in the Amazon. That is his goal. He has been on, put on record uh, leading up to his election, talking about how he wants to wipe out the indigenous people. He has praised, for instance, the... Obviously, he doesn't know history, but he praised that the Americans were able to wipe out their quote-unquote Indians Ugh. and they should, in Brazil, should be able to do the same thing. Fuck. Yeah. That's what's happening right now. Uh, these fires are deliberate. He is trying to kill the indigenous people. His goal is to wipe out the Amazon completely for industrial purposes. It's gone to the point where different um, indigenous groups in the Amazon who are usually at war with each other, have come together to fight against the evil. Yeah, exactly. So just want everyone to be very aware of that and how important it is that these fires stop, that he is stopped. And in this vein, a lot of people have been wondering how they can help because as we all do with like big issues is we feel helpless because we're just not sure what we can do. But as with most things, donating money is the biggest thing you can do. 
Money is kind of power. It's kind of power. So on Business Insider, they wrote an article about what you can do to help the Amazon. And they gave a list of charities you can donate to, which I want to list. So there's the Amazon Conservation Association, the Amazon Conservation Team, Amazon Watch, Rainforest Foundation US, Rainforest Trust, and Rainforest Action Network, that's the one I've donated to. And one that's not listed here is Amazon Frontlines. And this is only just like skimming the surface. So I just wanted to be like, hey, by the way, we're environmentalists. We have a really good Twitter feed, guys. Keep going to where you went to get this podcast and we'll be there next month, maybe, depending on our work schedules. Yep. We can't commit to a regular schedule right now, but someday we will. Okay. So see you guys. Bye. Bye.